From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Voters will decide two statewide ballot measures this election. One of them, Proposition HH, is designed to lower property taxes. But at what cost? You know, the main message from the people who wrote this proposition is that they want to reduce property taxes without also hurting schools or excessively hurting local governments. We'll look at both sides of Prop HH with Purplish, CPR's podcast about politics and policy. Plus, we'll answer a Colorado Wonders question about who puts together the blue book each election cycle. And you haven't used it in your car in decades. So why is fuel containing lead still used at small airports? There have been alternative gases created, researched, and proposed, and they've just continuously been declined. I'm Paulette, and I donated my car to CPR. I didn't want to have to go through the process of paperwork, you know, making sure somebody else is registering the car properly. And it was a way to give back that seemed like a better idea than trying to make a profit off of it. You know, we had been through a lot, me and that car. And after I donated, every time I listen, I feel like there's a little part of me in CPR. It's really easy to donate your car at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. You should receive your ballot for the November election in the mail any day now. They were sent out Monday. Voters will decide two statewide ballot measures. One of them is Proposition HH. The idea is to lower property taxes. But opponents argue it's not that simple. We're going to explore both sides of Prop HH with Purplish, CPR's podcast about politics and policy. Let's join CPR public affairs reporters Benta Berklin and Andrew Kinney. I got to visit a place recently that wasn't exactly on my bucket list, but I have been wanting to see it. That place being Publication Printers down in South Denver. Every autumn, this business takes on one of the biggest, arguably one of the most important print jobs in the state. So we're looking at kind of the very first blue books of, uh, of the year. This is like when the first autumn leaves fall or something. Exactly. It's the fall tradition. This is where they print millions of copies of the blue book. If you're listening to this and you vote in Colorado, you already have or are going to get one of these blue books in your mailbox. You can tell it's the blue book because it's a book and has a blue cover. Basically, it's a voter guide compiled by nonpartisan state staff. It's filled with information about ballot measures, arguments pro and con for those big questions that you have to decide on this November's ballot. So, Andy, you went to this printing office to see this blue book get printed. Did you just walk right in there? Uh, You know, it wasn't actually easy to get in. This place kind of keeps its operations under wraps. It took me a couple of years of asking to even be allowed to get in there. But, you know, I wanted to because I find the Blue Book to be such a fascinating piece of Colorado politics. It's a big part of how voters decide what to do with these big state-shaping ballot initiatives that we're always dealing with. The QR code works. It's the first year we have a QR code in the book. Now, I still haven't gotten to see these things flying off the actual presses, but they did let me sit in as these state government staffers put the final touches on the Blue Book. They were checking out all the little details, 
one last copy edit here, making sure the page numbers are in the right place, making sure that everything was basically okay. How many times have you looked at this thing? I think you would know. You think that, but it you gets harder <laughs> to like see stuff, I think, the more you look at it. Now, this was a relatively chill year for the Blue Book production team, since there are really only two things on the statewide ballot. But one of those ballot questions is very complicated. These staffers were tasked with explaining Proposition HH. That's the big property tax measure. And it took them a full 12 pages of text in the Blue Book. All y'all's talents were on display. Tables, bullet points, graphics, gradients. (laughs) Talents might be a little bit of a stretch of a word, an adjective. (laughs) Whoa, 12 pages, that's crazy. That's a huge amount of analysis. Proposition HH is this question that Democratic lawmakers put on the ballot earlier this year. It would reduce property tax rates, and it would also have this big effect of cutting into Tabor refunds. When you put it that way, it sounds simple, but Proposition HH could have huge consequences for taxpayers and for a lot of things taxpayers rely on. That's why actually this whole episode is going to zero in on Proposition HH, because like these legislative staffers, I've spent quite a few months figuring out what the measure really does and why it really matters. Ballots are in the mail to Colorado voters. If you haven't received yours, you should soon. It's an odd-numbered election year, an Mm -hmm. off year. So there's not as many ballot questions as you'll see in a general election year. Just two statewide measures. So let's get into it again with Proposition HH. You can think of this as maybe the blue book for your ears. I like that. Andy, Proposition HH. This is a proposition that has layers upon layers. Like an onion. Yes. You think I was going to say lasagna? (laughs) Yes, I did. (laughs) (laughs) So let's start with this topmost layer. What are the most basic things to know about what Proposition HH would do? All right. The one thing that you probably know about HH above anything else, especially if you've seen the ads for it, is that it will lower property tax rates, which means... Even if your property tax value is skyrocketing, your bill won't rise quite as fast as it would otherwise. And that's going to be over a period of 10 years, maybe more. So that seems like a pretty big deal. Home values are going up. There's a lot of concern across the state about what this means for people's tax bills. Exactly. So when you hear the backers of HH talk about it, they really stress tax relief and In fairness to them, it could have a big effect. Property owners could, if you put them all together, cumulatively save a billion to maybe up to $2 billion a year from that. And if you're looking at the individual homeowner with, you know, kind of typical home in the typical district, that could be $500 a year in some cases. But these $1 to $2 billion in taxes, Hmm. this money normally goes to the government. So things that are funded with these property tax dollars they're going to see a lot less money. Yeah, I mean, kind of. If HH passes, it's true that the local governments, school districts, they collect less money than they would have otherwise. Your property tax bill still may grow, but HH means it grows slower, and that's money that your local government is, in a sense, missing out on. And maybe they want that. Now, though, the people who wrote this proposition did have their eye on that effect. So what it does is that it, quote-unquote, backfills some of what the schools and the cities are losing 
it comes up with a new source of money to give to them to at least partially make up for those property tax dollars they're not getting. Have I thoroughly lost you yet? <laughs> no, no, not yet, but I'll try. talk about that mechanism, that back pocket of cash. Yeah. Where, where's that coming from? Magic, free money. Just kidding. Uh, it comes from what we call the Tabor Surplus. That's money that the state was otherwise going to have to give back to taxpayers normally. But if HH passes, instead of having to refund all that money, the state can now take at least some of that money and give it to schools, local governments, etc. again, to make up for some of the HH property tax cuts effects. And just quickly for folks who aren't super familiar with Tabor refunds and how they work, <laughs> Colorado's government has an annual spending cap. So any taxes and fees that the state collects that ends up being above this cap, that money is refunded to taxpayers. Totally. If there's a strong economic year and we pay quote unquote too much taxes, the government has to give some of that back. Right. And that's the Tabor refund. So with Proposition HH, am I right that these Tabor refunds would not go back to voters? Instead... They would go to schools and local governments to offset a property tax reduction. That's pretty much it. You know, the main message from the people who wrote this proposition is that they want to reduce property taxes without also hurting schools or excessively hurting local governments. So what they do is, again, called backfill, where it takes money that otherwise was going to have to be refunded. And it uses that to completely make up for any loss that schools are suffering as a result of HH. And again, it's a relative loss. Or to a lesser extent, it also makes up for some of what local governments are giving up in this whole deal. To go back to what this means for Coloradans, yeah. under HH, homeowners will pay less in their property tax rates over time. But everyone in Colorado would get less money back in Tabor refunds. That's the basic calculus. If I had to sum it up, homeowners save money. Everybody potentially loses out on refund money. Schools stay the same, or for reasons I'll explain later, maybe even benefit from this. And local governments get less than they would otherwise. That definitely helps clarify it when you put it in that category of winners and losers. Mm -hmm. I think we both know, covering politics, that anything that does have winners and losers... There's a lot of back and forth, partisanship, <laughs> politics, you name it, behind yep. the scenes. And next, we're going to dive into why Republicans hate something that's supposed to be a tax cut. Hey, so if you don't live and breathe the state legislature like we do, Proposition HH maybe kind of snuck up on you. Sneaked up on you? <laughs> Where did it come from? How did it suddenly appear on my ballot like this? Why do I have to read 12 pages of analysis? <laughs> I think a lot of people are not going to read 12 pages of analysis. Uh, but it would be helpful to take a step back and get into the why of why this big fancy tax and whatever else measure is on the ballot this year. Yeah, and I think the big underlying reason is that property values in Colorado have skyrocketed in recent years. So that means everyone who owns a house is facing much bigger property tax bills starting next year. So throughout the last legislative session during the spring, a big goal for lawmakers from both political parties, and they talked about this throughout the session, was the need to do something to shield people from these property tax values. Exactly. The state property tax administrator, Joanne Groff, told me that this was the craziest revaluation cycle in recent memory. In talking to some long-term assessors, they say they haven't seen this level of value change since 1987. And as we all know, higher property tax values means higher property tax bills. 
And we heard throughout that legislative session that lawmakers just felt compelled that they had to do something about property tax bills. They were going to have a big plan. But as the session went on, the question loomed larger and larger. What was that something, anything that they were going to do? We kept hearing that there's going to be a plan. We're working on a bill. And we're like, where? Where is it? Well, just a week before the end of the legislative session in May, Governor Jared Polis and Democratic leaders finally unveiled their their plan. They had a press conference at the Capitol. Yep, they got together. I think it was in the governor's office. And they said, here's our plan for reining in property taxes and keeping the increases reasonable. The fact that home prices have gone up drives property taxes up. And they've gone up at a rate significantly faster than inflation. And we need to provide relief now to make sure that people can afford to live in their own home. But because of Colorado's state constitution, the kinds of tax changes Polis and Democrats are proposing, they don't have the power to just make them on their own. Even though Democrats hold a majority in state government, they do still have to send this question to voters for voter approval. So I think uh, this is a very thoughtful policy. It'll go to the voters this November. I'm confident it'll pass. So that was the start of it. Polis is saying it's this property tax cut. We need it. It's going to pass. He's clearly very bullish on it. And yet from that start, the whole idea turned out to have some really major critics. One thing that was very notable at that first unveiling press conference, no Republican lawmakers were in attendance. When there's bipartisan support, you'll have lawmakers from both parties standing up there next to the governor and behind the governor to introduce the thing. Not this time. Exactly. And Republicans, usually they are in favor of tax cuts. That's one of their big things. Right. But this time they're not on board. Yeah, and I'd say that's for a couple reasons. First of all, some Republicans said, whoa, there's not enough time left in the session. Again, it was a week before session ended. Not enough time to vet this thing. It's moving way too fast. It's way too big. When I went back and looked, the proposal's 47 pages long. This is the original bill that created all this. Yeah, and as we've been talking about, it's complicated tax policy. You have the final week of the legislative session, which a lot of bills come down to the wire at the state house, And there's hundreds of other measures rushing through to make the deadline when the legislature adjourns for the year. So we're on this final day of the legislative session. And Republicans said basically that they were not going to have anything to do with this bill. And in fact, in the House, the minority leader, Mike Lynch, even led members of his party to walk out of the Capitol building in protest. Quite frankly, we're here to serve the people of this state, not the agenda of the governor. And if the governor cannot get, get an agenda item put on with 120 days and he leaves three days left to work his schedule through, we've had enough. We, we, our votes don't matter. Yeah, and I would say that Republican and conservative critics also caught on very quickly that this was changing the Tabor revenue limit, changing, affecting Tabor refunds. And some of them started to say, hey, maybe this isn't about property taxes. Maybe this is an attack on the taxpayer's Bill of Rights. And that's sacrosanct for Republicans, conservatives who support smaller government. They see this as a rain on government spending and getting money back into the hands of taxpayers. Exactly. So if you're wondering why do Republicans oppose this thing that's supposed to be a tax cut, maybe they liked the tax cut part, but they are now coming out in force 
to defend against what they see as an attack on Tabor. To sum this up here, Proposition HH started at the state capitol. Started with this idea of saving people money, which everyone agrees on. Yep. But turned into a big political fight the very end of session, passes on the last day. Democrats were able to put this on the ballot. They didn't need Republican votes. They didn't get Republican votes. So now we have this ballot initiative. And it's a political and a practical decision for voters across Colorado. Do they think this is the right direction for the state's fiscal policy for years to come? Andy, we've talked a little bit about the politics and you talked about big picture winners and losers. Hmm. But I think one key fundamental question a lot of people are going to have with Proposition HH is what does it practically mean for them? What does it mean for money in their pocket? Am I going to lose more in Tabor refunds than I save in property tax relief? It's a really good question. Super tough to answer. I'm not surprised, but... (laughs) (laughs) Uh, let me say that there are a handful of like calculators out there from different think tanks and actually from the state government as well to help you try to figure this out. We'll maybe link those in a story at CPR.org. Let's kind of walk through it. The property tax part is fairly simple to sort out because we know that your typical homeowner family will save something like $5,000 over 10 years. So is it the Tabor refund part that's harder to figure out? Yes, the Tabor refund part is impossible to say with certainty because we just don't know what the Tabor refund picture is going to look like for the next 10 years. It totally changes based on how the economy does. So you can't really know how much people stand to lose in Tabor refunds. Right, because the Tabor refunds, it's based on how much the economy is growing, mm-hmm. a certain amount of money is refunded to voters. You know, How do we know how much the economy is going to grow? Totally. One thing I can tell you is the maximum possible impact, because we know how much it raises the revenue limit, how much extra money the state could theoretically keep before it has to start paying refunds. That amount would be about $10 billion over 10 years. Let's put it another way, by the time a decade has passed, the state could get to keep an extra $2.2 billion or so before paying out refunds. With that analysis, is there a way to find out for an individual, for that person's refund check, their Tabor refund, how much less they may be getting? It's tough to say because the official material for HH only talks about the first couple of years where the economy is much more predictable. In those first couple of years, it's... Uh, relatively small, you know, a few dozen dollars or whatever off your refund. But the effect gets bigger and bigger over time because of the way the formula in HH is written. You know, I looked at two different think tanks from opposite sides of the political spectrum's estimates, and they agree, actually, that if the economy performs strongly, there's no recession and refunds would have been pretty big, then for an average income person, you could lose on the order of four or $5,000 in table refunds over 10 years. But on the other hand, if the economy goes into a crater and there was not gonna be any table refunds, you can't lose anything, then you really don't lose out on much because you weren't getting a refund anyway. So if I'm following this correctly, Proposition HH should save a typical property owner around $5,000 over a decade. But then it could cost that same household about $5,000 in lost Tabor refunds. So it seems like it kind of balances out. Yeah. And to be clear, that's if the economy is strong 
chances are there could be a recession. So that changes the math a little bit if they weren't going to get the refunds anyway. Maybe it's a good deal for them in the end. But that also leaves out renters. Renters don't directly pay property taxes. So for the renters, it's like, well, worst case, they lose out on a bunch of refunds and they don't get any property tax relief in exchange. And I would say politically, this is a little surprising. Democrats who hold the largest majority in state history at the Capitol have made renters' rights and affordability one of the top priorities. So here you have this proposition that, like you said, if you're a renter, you don't pay property taxes, but you could lose your Tabor refund. Yeah, uh, renters don't stand to gain much directly from this. I asked Governor Polis about that at that first press conference because it occurred to me as well. And what he said, though, is that renters basically indirectly pay property taxes through the rental rates set by the landlords. So if the landlord's paying less, the renter's paying less, kind of like trickle-down property tax economics. Later on, they added a little consolation prize for renters. In some years, there will be about $20 million of renter relief money going into a fund. But again, that's compared to hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars of property tax relief money and hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars of potential Tabor refunds that are being affected. So pretty pitifully. And you can't assume that a landlord will pass through a property tax reduction to a tenant. No, not necessarily. So that's the balance of pluses and minuses, winners and losers, and complicated politics as we go into this last stretch of the election. So we focused so far on how HH affects taxpayers and how it came to be. But there is this big piece that I think people may want to think about as they weigh in on how they're going to vote on this. What's that? Ultimately, it's about the size of Colorado's state government and what it spends money on, because that's a big part of what Prop HH actually affects. So how does that factor into all of this? We talked about how the state gets to, if HH passes, keep more money instead of refunding it. And we said that's going to be used to backfill the property tax dollars that schools especially are missing out on as a result of HH passing. But here's the twist. The state could actually end up retaining a lot more money, taking away, in a sense, a lot more of that refund money than the state really needs just for property tax purposes alone. Okay, so it's not one-to-one here. So it's not schools lose a dollar of property tax revenue and the state backfills that with just one dollar of Tabor refund. Yeah, not necessarily. What really happens is that there's a formula that allows the state to keep more and more refund money each year and it grows. It's got like a compounding number in there, so it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And if the state keeps more tax money than it really needs just to pay for schools backfill and that local government backfill, that extra money just goes to the schools anyway. Hmm. I got really curious about this, and I did a ton of long interviews with Democrats in the state legislature trying to understand this. And eventually, they all kind of agreed that Prop HH isn't just about cutting property taxes. Their hope, and part of the design, in my opinion, is that it actually will help increase schools funding in the long run by retaining more refund dollars. It's not just backfilling schools. It's actually potentially growing schools funding somewhat substantially. I mean, that's something Democrats for years have been trying to do. Yeah, totally. And, you know, a lot of them had backed a different version of this idea, part of this idea. Remember in 2019, Prop CC, that would have basically entirely eliminated Tabor refunds and used that money for schools and roads and colleges. And that failed. Correct. By about seven points. So now with Prop HH, we're once again debating this topic of using refund money. 
HH is different because it wouldn't entirely do away with refunds, and it does include this property tax cut this time. But if you talk again enough to Democrats, they'll agree that HH could have this effect of growing the school's budget. I think this helps explain why conservatives are so vehemently opposed to Proposition HH. Because it seems like if it passes, it will really reduce some of the limits that the state has on spending and growing state government. And the government could grow pretty massively. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I'll add that a lot of the supporters still maintain that this is supposed to be a property tax measure first and foremost. And hey, if it happens to help schools a bunch, so be it. It's all about framing. You could take it multiple different ways. Right. But this does go to a longtime goal of many on the left to really loosen that taper limit or maybe just do away with it. Here's Scott Wasserman. He's the president of the Bell Policy Center. It's a progressive group. Why shouldn't the taper surplus, which comes to us with no change in the existing tax rate, why should it not be subject to allocation, to thoughtful investments, be it education, infrastructure? Why shouldn't the taper surplus be a pot of money that we are allowed to look at? Well, I mean, you are allowed to look at it, but the state constitution says only voters can ultimately decide what to do with that surplus. And I guess with Proposition HH, this will be a chance to learn whether voters agree that this Tabor surplus would be well used to support schools and local governments, or if voters want to keep things as they are. So Andy, now that you have peeled back all those layers and tried to make this very complicated measure as clear as it can be, let me ask you, and it is a tough question, what do you think voters are going to decide about Proposition Ooh, HH? the voter question. Yes. It's hard to say. It's an off year, which means like turnout's low, means a lot of voters in this election are probably going to be older, probably going to be homeowners. Actually, older homeowners in particular benefit from this stuff. But on the other hand, voters in general haven't been very friendly historically to the idea of messing with the Tabor limit, messing with Tabor refunds. And I think the conservatives kind of smell blood on this one. They see a chance to defeat this. They're pouring money into the opposition campaign and, again, framing it as this Trojan horse attack on Tabor. Here's Michael Fields, who's heading up that campaign. The more information people understand or get about it, the less support they're going to get. And so I think it is a deliberate effort to not talk specifics, not talk about revenue. Andy, what do you think the biggest challenge is for supporters when they're making the case on something so complex like this? Explaining it. It's tough. I think that your typical voter is not necessarily going to understand all the mechanics of this, but they're going to wonder how it all works and why it's so long. The other thing is, I think people like getting refunds. It's like a psychological thing. You're paying taxes all the time without noticing, and then, bam, you get this money back in your checking account. So I think that some voters, a lot of voters maybe, are going to perceive this as a taking or a loss. Even despite the property tax cut and it being billed that way by Democrats. Yeah, I think so. I think that that's the biggest challenge is helping people understand the direct financial effect on them. Andy, thanks so much for walking us through all of this, the complexities, the pros and cons, the winners and losers. I think you've given people a lot to think about as they open their blue book or not and read through that 12 pages analysis or not. But thanks again. Thank you. Public affairs reporters Benta Berklin and Andrew Kinney in Purplish, CPR's podcast about politics and policy. Find this and all the episodes at CPR.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Ballots for the November election were put in the mail on Monday, so you should be getting yours any day now. 
Election day is Tuesday, November 7th. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. It's not only like paint on a wall, it's like culture on a wall, and that's meaningful. Check out Off the Walls, a new podcast about the stories and the people behind Denver's street art. It was exactly what the community needed at the time that it was being put up. Off the Walls on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. With support from Janice Henderson Investors. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. Again, good morning and welcome to Rocky Mountain Metropolitan Airport. People living near Rocky Mountain Metropolitan Airport in Broomfield won a major victory this month. The facility announced it would phase out leaded fuel by 2027, three years ahead of a federal target date. Our team's commitment to innovative solutions and community collaboration is why the airport's full transition will be well in advance of the FAA timeline. Sounds ambitious, but the U.S. banned leaded car fuel almost 30 years ago. That's long after scientists proved it poisons kids. CPR climate and environment reporter Sam Brash wanted to discover why leaded gas is still a problem for small airports. If there's anyone with answers, it's Mo Clark. She's a freelance journalist who recently broke down this issue for Collective Colorado. That's a publication of the Colorado Trust. Hi, Mo. Hi, Sam. Okay, so your story totally shocked me. I thought leaded gasoline was a pollution problem of the past, something you were only going to read about like in environmental history textbooks. And you say, I'm, I'm not alone, that a lot of people are surprised that this is even a thing. Yeah, I didn't know it was a thing before I started reporting this story. And a lot of people assume that lead was banned when leaded automobile gas was banned in the 1990s. But that's just not true. And just because people might have forgotten, why is lead a concern? Why are we worried about it? So lead is a neurotoxin. It's especially dangerous for children under six. They're smaller. The metal can be really absorbed into their nervous system. Exposure to lead for decades has been linked with lower IQ, learning disabilities, behavioral challenges in children. Uh, The research has been really, really clear about the the dangers of lead exposure. When did we even start adding led to fuel in the first place and and why? Yeah. So soon after the automobile was invented, General Motors introduced an additive for gas. The powerful difference between gasoline and ethyl gasoline. Actually, in the 50s, ethyl, a gas company, started advertising the benefits of using lead in gasoline. The burning gases give the piston a smooth, powerful push. And that's the difference. Basically, the lead generally helps the the engine run smoother. It also reduces um, engine shake. So same thing goes for airplanes. That's why it was added to the gas to minimize engine shake, because obviously you don't want your uh, engine to be shaking when you're 
thousands of miles above ground. Sounds like, yeah, it sounds like that could be an issue. Yeah, for sure. And you mentioned that the U.S. started to phase this out in the 70s, a full ban in the 90s. But there's an exception for piston aircraft. Why was that exception included? Partially for safety reasons and partially for political ones. Safety-wise, what we already just talked about, it stops the engine from shaking. On the political side, there have been alternative gases created, researched, and proposed, and they've just continuously been declined. And there's been some really good investigative reporting about why that is. And a lot of it has to do with some pretty heavy lobbying from oil and gas companies because while not a lot of planes use this gas, it is quite a profitable sector of their profile. When it comes to these small airports, how much of an issue is leaded fuel? Like we know the planes are using it to fly around. These small piston planes are using it to fly around. But is it clear that it's also impacting these neighborhoods? Yeah. So there was a study that published at the beginning of this year out of California that found as flight traffic went up, so did the lead levels in children's blood. Wow. That study was pretty groundbreaking, really, really strongly connecting those two dots. And that study sort of became a rallying cry for a lot of neighborhoods that have been bringing up this issue for for years and hoping for an alternative to come online. And are there better alternatives available today? Like, are they offered now in Colorado? Yes. So there's two new gases available Currently, only one airport in Colorado offers it. It's Centennial Airport. Rocky Mountain Metropolitan Airport will soon be offering the fuel as well. There's also other fuels coming online shortly that are in development. So these first ones have been approved, but I think we'll see see more in the coming years. So it seems like this is an issue that will be solved. I saw the Federal Aviation Administration has announced it plans to phase out leaded aviation gas by 2030. Is that just not soon enough for a lot of residents living near these airports? Yeah. For the story, I spoke to one resident um, who lives in the flight path of Rocky Mountain, Charlene Willey. She's been very concerned about the noise around the airport and also the potential lead exposure for children. And the topic is just really personal for her. So my own health, which I've guarded carefully for uh, my whole life, is now threatened. Her husband died of cancer as a result of um, radiation exposure from Rocky Flats, which is the now-closed nuclear weapons manufacturing plant that's now a nature preserve. She sees this sort of as a, a similar story where the public health concerns related to lead exposure from Avgas are not being taken seriously enough. When you let the public down, look what happens. And it seems like that kind of advocacy might have had some results. We saw this recent news from Rocky Mountain Metropolitan Airport around leaded aviation fuel. Tell me what happened. So the airport manager at Rocky Mountain Metropolitan Airport he announced last week that by next fall, two-thirds of the airport's piston engine aircraft will be able to use an unleaded fuel that's been approved. They bought a new tank to be able to store the gas. That was a big issue. The tanks are pretty expensive. And then the ultimate goal is to have all leaded fuel phased out by 2027, which is three years before the federal deadline, which was 2030. And what about the residents who have really pushed for this change? Was that 
enough, not enough? What's been their reaction? I mean, they're they're obviously relieved to know that there's a timeline. I think a lot of them wish it was sooner, but it, it seems like it's a step in the right direction. And 2030 is a long ways away. That's a lot of lead that would be emitted into the environment and into neighborhoods. So, yeah, I think there's general optimism about the step, but I think a lot of people would have rather seen it come sooner. And with all these sorts of environmental stories, I'm always curious about the simpler, more aggressive option, right? Stop flying these planes or reduce the number of flights or reroute the flights. Has any of that been on the table? And and if not, like what's standing in the way? Residents have certainly brought up all of those options with not a lot of traction. Essentially, the Federal Aviation Administration sets all rules and regulations related to airports. That gets brought up in a lot of these sort of local conversations where airport managers will be like, our hands are tied. The FAA says the skies have to be sort of open for business, essentially. So where do you see all this going from here? I think we'll just see the story unfolding in other communities across the state and across the country. Other communities surrounding airports um, have been watching what has unfolded at the Centennial Airport and the Rocky Mountain Metropolitan Airport um, to use sort of as a playbook for how to move forward. One thing I think is important is it's not that helpful if just one airport does it. Like, Pilots are flying all across the state, and if they can't fill up gas because the airport doesn't have the gas that their airplane uses, um, it's not that effective. So I think it'll sort of be a domino effect where other airports will see Rocky Mountain and Centennial as sort of the leaders in this and will follow suit for health reasons, but also convenience for pilots. They need to be able to fill up. Mo, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. That was CPR's climate and environment reporter, Sam Brash, speaking with freelance journalist Mo Clark. She's covered neighborhood activists worried about lead pollution from Rocky Mountain Metropolitan Airport. It's working to switch to all unleaded fuel by 2027. community center serving LGBTQ folks is opening in Colorado Springs. The PRISM Community Collective will provide access to health resources. It's made possible through a federal grant following the shooting at Club Q. KRCC's Abigail Beckman spoke with Rachel Keener from the Community Health Partnership, one of the groups that pushed for the center. Tell me about the journey to get here, because the center is something the LGBTQ community in Colorado Springs has been asking for for a long time. But why now? Yeah. When a community goes through something like Club Q, they can apply for a federal grant from the Anti-Terrorism Emergency Assistance Program. It's kind of like FEMA, but for mass shootings and What that does is allow an organization or group of organizations to stand up mental behavioral health, peer support, and other supportive services for a community after a shooting. 
And that is what the catalyst was for exploring whether or not there was need for this resource and whether or not it was feasible. And that has been a 10-month journey to lead us to now. And you did some research ahead of this, a community needs assessment. How will that play into what you see in the center? Yeah, so we had a needs assessment planned to get some data on how LGBTQ plus folks broadly, but especially transgender and gender expansive people were accessing healthcare in our community. And we added a couple questions on resource needs, community center desires, like what we would want to see in it. And we got back sort of what we were expecting to get back, that the disparities for access to both mental and physical health care and just resources generally in Colorado Springs was really lacking for this community. We saw that 43% of LGBTQ people in El Paso County did not have a primary care physician at all. And 60% of folks who wanted a therapist didn't have one, a mental health therapist, citing being afraid of being outed, rejected, not knowing how to find an affirming therapist. And so what the data shows is a really significant portion of our community just doesn't have access to care. And then if you are somebody who needs any kind of gender affirming care, like hormone replacement therapy, 61% of folks don't have access to it at all. And 38% of folks who do have to travel 60 miles or more just to get basic hormone support. And those appointments are oftentimes once monthly and are things that most primary care physicians can do in like a standard office appointment. Now, where are you pulling from for guidance for this? Because it's not an easy thing to set up. There are best practices and experts who have been so helpful in walking us through this journey. And there is some good support on the benefits of a community center after a tragedy like this and bringing people together. There are also a lot of criticisms around how those institutions are funded, their use, their longevity, how sustainable they are as a resource. From the beginning, we have what we've been calling a community advisory board, which is really just a group of providers, community members, and now survivors and some families of victims to sort of help steer the direction of the space. The goal is really creating a space for people to show up, be in community, have everything from open mic nights to art space to access to no-cost clinicians. And it really is a choose-your-own-adventure to start. And I think we'll see as we go along what resources are needed that we don't have, what is utilized, what's not utilized, and adjust accordingly. Tell me about the name, PRISM Community Collective. What is the significance there? Yeah, so PRISM, you know, colors, refracting light, the diversity of this community is a little bit more of an obvious one. But the point that I want to highlight is the community collective portion. So this is a real collaborative between us, our community partners, our ever-expanding list of community members and smaller organizations who are involved. And what uh, we are really looking to do is make sure that folks can access resources through this space and they might need to go access resources across Colorado Springs. And it's through bringing in these partners and having them do work with this community under the umbrella of PRISM that allows us to make sure that regardless of where you're accessing mental or physical health care or peer support services in this town, we are working to make sure that LGBTQ people have a good experience. Rachel Keener of the Community Health Partnership, speaking with KRCC's Abigail Beckman, 
This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. It peaks at just 11,000 feet, but as the largest flat-top mountain in the world, it certainly lives up to its name, Grand Mesa. Broad and wide, Grand Mesa is capped by a layer of uneroded basalt that dates back to volcanic eruptions 10 million years ago. Rising tall over the dry, high desert, it's graced with hundreds of lakes and home to multitudes of trout, bear, cougars, elk, deer, and according to Ute legend, thunderbirds whose mighty wings could whip up ferocious storms. After a massive and deadly mudslide on Grand Mesa in 2014, one witness described a sound like a big clap of thunder. And on the western face of Grand Mesa, there's a rock formation that does look like a thunderbird. A reminder that others have called Grand Mesa by another name, Thunder Mountain. A Colorado postcard from Colorado Public Radio with the support of National Jewish Health. Breathing science is life. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. We heard about Prop HH earlier in today's show. It's one of two statewide ballot measures voters will decide in the November election. To further help you understand both sides of the issues, you also get a blue book in the mail in the weeks before any given election. Have you ever wondered who actually puts the blue book together? That question sent public affairs reporter Andrew Kenny to the offices of a printing plant in South Denver. So we're looking at kind of the very first blue books of, uh, of the year. This is like when the first autumn leaves fall or something. <laughs> exactly. It's a fall tradition. On a recent weekday morning, I watched as government staffers put the final touches on the ubiquitous pamphlet known as the Blue Book. So what we have in front of us are the proofs. They were looking for any elusive typos or layout issues. We have hopefully found typographical errors by now. <laughs> like, Kathy and I were literally like reading it back and forth from two different versions yesterday to make sure. It's good to be diligent when you know your publication's going to end up in the hands of millions of Colorado voters. One of those voters is Emma Davis, who asked CPR, who exactly writes the Blue Book? Because I imagine it's pretty contentious going back and forth, trying to figure out how to present the issues to the voters. I was just interested in how they figure out the right way to do that. Blue Books are actually required by the state constitution, which says the legislature's nonpartisan staff have to write up information about each question on the statewide ballot. In the basement of the state capitol, research manager Kathleen Essinger can show you a whole filing cabinet full of the books. Yeah, these are the earliest ones. The first one came out in 1954. They got their trademark color a couple years later. We have a 1956 booklet here that's in blue. Um, and I, I think that was to make it distinguish. For many years, if you wanted to read the blue book, you'd have to find one at the library or the offices of political parties and local governments. But in 1994, voters narrowly approved an amendment saying, mail it out by the millions. Today, putting together the blue book's a huge part of the job for Esslinger's team. We watch it from the very beginning in terms of a, a citizen coming in and submitting their idea for a citizen initiative to our office. Ballot measures can 
can also come from the legislature. But whatever their source, even before they're approved for the ballot, Esslinger's team may already be drafting preliminary language to run past opponents and supporters. We receive comments back. We review all those comments and take those very seriously. And then weigh kind of what changes might be in order based on the feedback that we're getting. They'll go through two or three major revisions. It's a high-stakes, high-pressure process. Each side is trying to gain an advantage in the one piece of election information guaranteed to go to practically every voter. And while the process is conducted by nonpartisan staff, the Blue Book language ultimately gets reviewed by a panel of top lawmakers who have the power to make final edits. The Legislative Council Committee will come to order. Good morning, everybody. Thank you. There were only two questions on the ballot this year, and Republicans wanted changes to the description for one of them. They said the 12-page write-up of Proposition HH, while factual, was too friendly to the property tax and Tabor measure, Senate Minority Leader Paul Lundeen. And I think we owe it to the people of Colorado to bring the substance and the importance of the, con- the breadth of the conversation to page one. But the panel's run by Democrats, who also came up with HH in the first place, and they said the Blue Book description was fair. Some states avoid this debate altogether by just printing pro and con arguments from partisans, no pretense of neutrality. Colorado is somewhat unusual in trying to make that neutral guide, and that's won the Blue Book some fans. Oh, I I love the Blue Book um, because I'm interested in elections. When it arrives at my house, it's like, oh, the Blue Book's here. Wendy Underhill is the director of elections with the National Conference of State Legislatures, which is based in Colorado. She says Colorado scores high marks with its detailed analysis and universal availability. But she does still wonder if that venerable paper booklet will always be the right answer. If you're a young person who just moved into your new apartment, you might not be even checking your mailbox. So is getting a blue box mailed to you a good way to get information out? It depends on who you are. Back at the printer's office, they're testing out a new feature, a QR code that links to an interactive tax calculator to give voters customized information about Proposition HH. And put all your info in, and it gives you a number. Works on the first try. The legislative staffers finish their review, and off it goes. First to the printer, and then to your mailbox. I'm Andrew Kenny, CPR News. What do you wonder about when it comes to Colorado? From politics to policy to the great outdoors, cultural traditions, and state history, email us your questions at cpr.org slash Colorado Wonders. Thanks for joining us today and to the Colorado Matters team. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Tom Hess, Michael Hughes, Chris Ketchum, Pedro Lumbraño, Shane Rumsey, Ryan Warner, and I'm Chandra Thomas Whitfield. This is CPR News and KRCC.